Good morning. How's everyone? Good. My name is Eric, and I'd uh, love to meet you if I haven't out in the courtyard or in the lobby pending on the rain. Uh, hopefully you got to see that coming in. That's always fun. Uh, just a reminder, we've started connection classes. So if you've ever wanted to take a class and just go deeper in your faith, learn more about the Bible, how to share your faith uh, in a topic, I encourage you to do that and look through it. Uh, we'd love for you to be a part of that. Um, save the date. Uh, January 22nd, we're going to have a meeting after the second service in the activity center, that's the middle building, uh, about going to Israel. And so that's Israel 2024. This is, I think, our third attempt at this. And so we're praying things stay clear and fun. And uh, we look forward just to taking people from our church to see where Jesus walked and taught and uh, to see these are real places that have real evidence of uh, existing and to see your faith come alive. So that'll be on the 22nd. After this service, lunch will be provided. Uh, we'll go through the dates. January 2024 is the trip. And so we look forward to that with you. So we're going to continue on in our series here uh, in the purpose of the church. Uh, we are taking a break from Matthew. We'll hop back in. Uh, as we kicked off the new year, I thought, man, it'd be really good just to kind of walk through, you know, what is a church? Why do we go to church? How does this work? Um, there's a lot of confusion I think about that, not just from the world's perspective, but in churches, there's confusion. And so we just want to bring clarity and see what the Bible has to say. And 1 Timothy just is a great book. And we don't have time to walk through the whole book. But um, part of the reason this passage was selected is that phrase, household of God. It's used over and over and over and over again. That this is the household of God. This is the household of God, meaning a church. And Paul's telling Timothy, look, if I don't get there, don't waste one second. You need to set up this household, this structure. And I think household reigns true for us. We understand what that means. Um, I have a niece, and she was, she was about three, and she was hanging out at my house. And um, her face was just like a hot mess from all the food. You know, three-year-olds, right? And uh, I'm telling her, hey, let me clean your face. And she's like, no. She's like fighting me. And I'm like, look, I have a rule in my house that you have to keep the pretty face clean. And she goes, that's, that's kind of a dumb rule, right? She doesn't understand. She's three. And I was like, no, it's a rule. You have to keep the pretty face clean. And so she goes to her mom and she's like, hey, uncle said I have to keep my pretty face clean. Is that true? And she goes, his house, his rules. So you have to clean your pretty face. And so it's that concept she understood. Look, this is uncle's house, uncle's rules. And we understand that phrase because we use that with our kids all the time. My house, my rules. And if you don't like it, you can wait till you have your own house and make your own rules. And we understand that phrase succinctly and honestly, and we get it. But somehow when it comes to God, it's like, God, it's your house, but my rules. And somehow we think that narrative is okay. And what we miss is those rules are there, right? That's why we have them. Little insight. I'm playing chess with this because one day when they want to wear makeup and they want to wear too much, I'm going to say you need to keep the pretty face clean, right? That's chess, not checkers. See, we're looking at that, but the rules are there because we're looking at how are we going to love and take care of our families and they're there for a reason. And God's saying, I have a household. I have a family and it's the church and I've set up rules and order and I want it to be upheld and I want it to be there because I'm the father and I've done that for you. And so we're just going to walk through what that means in the text and why it's good for us and why uh, we need to uphold the structure that God's put there. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for your word. We're thankful that we have it written down, 
that we get to open up our Bibles and see how do you want us to live? How do you want us to act? Uh, what should be our thoughts and emotions and our reactions? And how should we view life and people? And how should we view you? Um, and so I just pray that your word would speak, that we would have an affinity and an affection um, for the family of God in the church, uh, that we would see your structure, your plan is the greatest in all the world, um, that we would love your word, love what you have done, and we would praise you for the beautiful structure that you have provided. So we pray for your words and not mine. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first thing we'll do before we kind of walk through what is a church is what is not a church, um, because this has kind of become this this popular idea in Christianity that you can take verses out of context and make your own kind of truth or make your own declaration. And one of the most abused passages in all of the Bible is Matthew 18, 20. And it says, for whether there are two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, even taking that out of context, I don't know how that communicates it to church. When I read that, I just see that where people are gathered, God is there. Is that a fair rendering? Okay, I'm not trying to trick you. Just think about it. I just, how do you get church out of that? And so what people do is let's get three people together at Starbucks, open our Bible, and say we went to church. Four guys go into a Dodger game that are Christians. They just went to church, right? And so you see this play out, and it's like, that's church. I can do that as long as there's two or three gathered. Now, if you look at the passage, it makes no sense, okay, if you put it in its full context. And I just want to help us understand that uh, as, as we think through what is a church. It's talking about when a Christian has a problem with another Christian. And it's saying, hey, when a brother sins against you, you go to them and you tell them how they've sinned against you. When that doesn't work, you grab two or three others and you go. It says, when that doesn't work, go to the church and tell the church about the offense. Now, if the two or three are the church, they would go and tell themselves about the disagreement and then themselves would have to make a judgment, which they've already done because they already went to him. And why would he care what the church has said? Because he already knows what they have said. It's creating two different groups. Do you see that? It's important. It makes no sense. A church is an entity and it has a design. It's not where two or three are gathered. So just because you have two or three Christians together doesn't mean you have church. And so how does the Bible set up a church structure? Titus 1, 5 says this. So this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So there's our first clue. It's a plurality of elders. And the plurality of elders govern the household of God. They govern the church. And so he writes Timothy and he writes Titus. He writes these books and says, this is how it's to be constructed. And this is how it's to be ordered. And this is what you're supposed to do. You see it in the book of Acts, Acts 14, 23. It says, and when they appointed elders for them in some churches, every church, every church has a plurality of elders. With prayer and fasting, they committed to them, uh, to the Lord, who, in whom they have believed. So right there, right off the bat, you see a church is governed by a plurality of elders. First Timothy will tell you it's qualified men that they have to have these qualifications. They're to govern the church. It says there are going to be those that labor in preaching and teaching, that they're going to be paid for the preaching and teaching and laboring of the gospel. 
So he sets it up. So this is how a church is to be. I want you to set it up in every church and I want it to be a plurality of elders and I want it to be in every town. So the first part of this is a church has elders. And it says later on, you read in Hebrews that you're to submit and obey to the elders. And the elders are to uphold the word of God. They're to teach the word of God. They're to rebuke false teaching. They're to make sure that the needs of the widows and the orphans are met. They're to make sure um, that the men are leading their families. Read through 1 Timothy. He lays it out. The elders are to make sure that the older men are teaching the younger men and the older women are teaching the younger women. And it lays out this structure. And so when someone tells you, oh, I I go to church, I was on my porch, say, where were your elders? That's a fair question according to the scriptures. When you're on vacation and your family decides to talk about Jesus for 10 minutes, you didn't go to church. When you have a Bible study and you're you're meeting, that's not a church. It's underneath the authority of the church maybe, but it's not a church. And so it's important we see that God says, I have a structure. In that structure, it's a plurality of elders. And in here, now walk through 1 Timothy. They're to have a certain morality. He says that marriage is between a man and a woman. 1 Timothy 1. He walks through there to be elders to govern. There's to be deacons that serve in the church. They help meet the needs of the church. And then he goes through, hey, there's going to be women in the church. Some of them might be widowed. If they're young widows, he encourages them to get married so that they don't gossip. What's he saying? Hey, if you're busy enough to, if you have enough time to gossip, you're not busy enough. So he says, hey, you young widows, you women, get married so you have a house to take care of. Manage your households. What he says. He says, hey, men, if you're not taking care of your families, you're not providing for them, you're worse than a non-Christian. Men, you need to step up and do this. You need to lead your families. And then it says toward the ends of 1 Timothy, it's like, hey, there's going to be people that depart from the truth. They're going to make up rules and go away from the gospel. He says, elders, uphold the trustworthy word. Teach it, rebuke it, train. So the church now starts to take on this shape. It's supposed to help Christians grow in their faith. It's supposed to reach lost people. It says in chapter two that we're supposed to pray for all kinds of people. We're even supposed to pray for our government officials, it says in chapter two. We're to pray for these people. We're supposed to evangelize even the worst of the worst of people. Paul says, look, Timothy, be encouraged. God's patience is demonstrated in me becoming a Christian. Meaning Paul used to persecute Christians. He says, if God can save me, he can save anyone. It's a demonstration of God's patience. Therefore, evangelize to everyone you can. Grow the people in their faith. Treat it like a household. And so that's your structure of what a church is. A church helps evangelize the lost, helps grow the church, keeps the purity of God's word. And ultimately, ultimately, this is what you need to see if you miss anything. The purpose of a church is to glorify God. We hear that a lot. That's fancy. What does that really mean? This is what it means. It means that as a Christian, you're going to look at God's order about marriage, about parenting, about gossip, about Uh, anger, worry, hatred about your finances, all of the rules of the house. And you're going to say, I would rather live in his house than in any other house in all the world. And God is glorified when the world sees that. Think of it this way. When Satan tempts Jesus, he goes to Jesus after he's been fasting. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. And he says, Jesus, I will give you the world 
I will give you power and authority and you'll get fed. And Jesus says, I'd rather be crucified with God than to be in partnership with you. Now that tells the story of an amazing father, doesn't it? And so when the world sees, I would rather sleep on the, full, on the floor with God the Father and his household than the greatest palace that Satan could ever provide. The world says, wow, why? When Paul says, I would rather go to prison and be with Jesus than have freedom and be with the world, God is glorified because you're saying he's the better father. His household is the better household. Even though it restricts my you know, sexual freedom, my financial freedom, my uh, freedom of speech, all of these things now have rules and order and structure that God has. Saying I'd rather have that structure, I'd rather have those rules and be with him forever than to have all the freedom in the world and be with the world but be without Jesus. So it walks through that. This is what a church is. Now it walks through, how are we to behave in that church? How are we to behave? We're to reflect Jesus so that when people see us, they see Jesus. This is part of this is the way the church takes care of each other. And that's why when you walk through 1 Timothy, it's so amazing to see that there's the older taking care of the younger. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be like old like you're thinking. You just need to be older than somebody else. And that you would help them in their face. Why is this important? So that the world sees Christians like God takes care of his people. Maybe I'll put it this way. When I was young, you know, I grew up without a dad and just grew up with my mom. And I would do this a lot. I would, I would see other families and I would, I would pretend what it would be like to be a part of their family what it would like to be have a mom and a dad. And as I grew up in the church, that need went away because I realized I had the greatest family of all in the church because I didn't have one dad, I had 10. I had what I would call a, ball, ball, a bullpen, if you don't know baseball. All these different men there, and they were helping me learn how to be a Christian, how to love Christ, how to obey all that he would see and ask of me. And so the behavior is part of us validating that I'd rather live under the rules of what God has for me than anything the world could offer me. Good quote I came across in my study. It says, from what we have seen in 1 Timothy so far, the kind of conduct the apostle has in mind includes proper doctrine, proper gender relations, proper spiritual leadership in the church, the way the church is to take care of each other. So our behavior is very, very important. Our behavior validates that we trust the Father's structure. And what's interesting is in our own homes, we understand my house, my rules. Don't question the rules. It's my house. We understand that concept, don't we? But then somehow when it comes to God's rules, it's like, well, did you really say that? Did you really mean that? Do I really have to do that? Because you love it when your kids undermine your authority, don't you? Right? It's just so encouraging. I mean, imagine your kids come to you and say, you know what, mom, dad, you always tell me I could be anything I want to be. I want to be in charge. So just give me the credit cards, give me the checkbook, and I'll have at it. And, you know, if you're good, I'll get you a little something. Okay? Uber can get me everywhere I need to go. I don't need you to drive me. You wouldn't be okay with that, would you? 
You're like, no, 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 I don't think you understand how this works. I'm the parent. I'm in charge. And after they why you to death, you come to, I brought you into this world and I will take you out of this world, don't you? Okay, well, God's saying the same thing. When you can create the world, be infinite, perfect, and all-powerful, then you can be in charge. Until then, I brought you into the world and I will take you out of this world. It's the same thing. If he didn't care about how we were to behave and act, he wouldn't have written it down for us to know and see and follow. See, the problem becomes we want to we wanna change the house rules so that we feel more comfortable living in the house. But yet we forget in our own homes, we would say, if you don't like it here, go find somewhere else to live. God has that very same ability to say to us. That's why Jesus models, no, 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 no. I'd rather be crucified and be in this household. Think about that. Think of the power of Paul. I'd rather be in prison than, than, than to be with the world. I'd rather, I'd rather rot in a jail cell and sing hymns to Jesus. So our behavior, it matters. And so anytime we want to question the rules, it's just like you would do with your own children. On what basis do you think you can leave whenever you want and not ask for permission? On what basis do you think you can walk into my purse and just grab money as you freely please? Same walks through this book. On what basis do you think we can just gossip about people and God doesn't care? On what basis can you just pick marriage and make it whatever you want to be and forget what God says? On what basis can you be addicted to substances and use them to fill in your insecurities? On what basis can you have greed and anger and worry and just ignore that God calls us to not be angry, to not hate, to not take vengeance in their own hands, to not have anxiety? On what basis do you get to change the house rules? That's a fair question, isn't it? And so that's why I said I wrote it down so that you would know how to behave. Because behavior is really going to matter. The non-Christians need to see this family and be like, oh my gosh, I want to be a part of that family. That family is unlike anything I've ever seen. They take care of each other. They love each other. They have the highest moral principles I've ever seen. They're not angry and bitter. They're loving and kind and gracious. And so our behavior is so important that God wrote it down. Now the next part, what does he say? So you might know how to behave in the household, which is the church of the living God. Now, this is where it's very important to pay attention, okay? It says, a pillar and a buttress of truth. It says the church is to be a pillar of truth. Now, I don't want you to get angry here, but I just, I have to point this out. I have to point this out. Does it say a pillar of love? No, it doesn't. It says a pillar of truth. Because the most loving thing you can do is be honest. Love will flow from the truth. It'll be a subset of it. Here's what I want us to notice. I think we see the word truth and we confuse some things in the church. So let's let's bring some clarity. Truth for a non-Christian is going to look different for truth for a Christian. You're like, oh man, you believe in pluralism. No, I don't. Hear me out. Okay. When, what are we saying? Let me put it to you this way. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our sin. Okay? When we pre-Christ, before we become a Christian, you are dead in your sin. Would it make any sense to offer a dead man a hip replacement? It's not a trick question. No, it wouldn't. Heart transplant. 
Absolutely, make him alive. Then work on hips, knees, elbows, core, right? health, weight, weight management. All of those things make a lot of sense after they've been made alive. And see, what we do is we switch these two roles and we chastise the non-Christians for not acting like Christians. When they're dead in sin, and we're like, your hip, your knee, your ankle, you need to get clean before you come to church. You're not welcome here. You don't act like us. Well, yeah, they don't act like us. They don't have a new heart. They don't know Jesus. So then what happens? I mean, this is common. You talk to kids in their 20s. Kids, I'm getting old, right? You talk to adults in their 20s and 30s. And it's disheartening when I invite them to church. And like, oh, I was, people were really mean to me at church when I was young. They didn't have a Christian family. They didn't know how they were to act. And they came to church and all the Christians did was tell them how they need to change their behavior and they weren't good enough and they didn't fit in. See, here's the bad thing about Christianity. We want to give people t-shirts and blankets, but don't come to my kid's birthday party because you might ruin my little bubble. You might rub off on them. What does a non-Christian need? They need to know that Jesus is the only way to God. They need to know that they're dead in their sin and the only way they can be made alive is to know Christ. And then we'll work on, okay, now that you're alive, once you have heart surgery, you kind of need to change the way you eat, don't you? I'm not going to you guys for advice if I get heart surgery, okay? You guys are like, no, you got to change. It's a whole new life. You're a whole new person. There's a whole new setup going on. And so for the non-Christian, this is, this is why Paul, read First Timothy. He's like, the way God was with me just shows his patience. Paul killed Christians. He's telling Timothy, pray for everyone. Evangelize everyone. If you're not a Christian, you're welcome here. We love you, but you need to have Jesus be the payment for your sin. And after you've accepted him as that payment, there's going to be some other things you need to change. But get that right first. Focus there first. We can't tell Christians, start acting like a Christian. You don't even know Jesus. See, this is very prevalent in missions too. If you go to India, one of the reasons they'll have these huge, look at all these churches we planted. And then you'll be like, well, where are all those churches? They all went away. Because they believe that you can change someone's behavior. And if you change their behavior, the heart will follow. And so they'll teach these Indians how to read a Bible, how to pray, how how to sit in a group and study how to give their money. You know what they do the next day? They go to a Hindu temple and they worship the other thousand gods they worship because they don't have a heart that wants God as father. They want a behavior that gets them a get out of jail free card just in case. You're just teaching them to go for the benefits without the relationship. This is why the household of God is so important. It's saying, this is your father. You have a relationship with the father. He adopted you and purchased you through the Son. You're to love the Father and trust all that the Father tells you. It's not a behavior. It's an identity. It's who we are. So for the Christian, Christian that lives in the household of God says, you know, I don't gossip because God tells me not to. I want to hate that person, but I won't because God tells me not to. Now, the beautiful thing about this is as you grow older, you can see how God's rules benefit you. 
and, and how they're better for you. It's like right now we might have some, some young girls in the audience and they're like, he's saying I can't wear lip gloss. It's like, no, 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 no. Keeping the pretty face clean is much bigger than lip gloss. Right? Just side note, there becomes a line in makeup where you're starting to fake who you are. Would we agree with that? You know what I mean? There's a line between like helping yourself out and like becoming a different person. Okay? And when you're pretending to be somebody else, they don't like you, they like who you're pretending to be. And, and I'm, this isn't an Eric rule. Read First Peter. It says that beauty is on the inside. And women focus on adorning themselves and doing this. And they say, but a true woman fears the Lord and beauty is on the inside. We're playing the long game when we're teaching women that their beauty is in their heart and they don't need to decorate themselves in a way to make people like them. That's playing the long game. You see that? But when you're, when you're young, all you hear is, I can't wear, right? God's word's like that sometimes. I should be able to hate them. I should be able to cheat on my wife. I shouldn't have to take care of my family. I should be able to slander and hate the government all that I want. And I don't understand why God says no. Read 1 Timothy 2. Pray for the kings and the high authorities and positions. Just pray for them. Be peaceful with them. Live quiet, godly lives with them. Sometimes all you can do is say, I don't know why that's there, but it's there. And I trust that God said it, and I trust that it's best for me. You know what? So I'm going to be faithful to my wife. I'm going to forgive that person. I'm going to manage my household. I'm going to take care of my family. And so when the world sees us walking through all of these rules and saying, I'd rather have all of these rules and have Jesus than to have all the freedom in the world but be with Satan. That's when God is glorified. Because it's tangibly saying, God is better. And that's where the world is dumbfounded. You mean you'd give up your sexual preferences because the Bible says marriage between a man and a woman? Yes, I would. You mean you would give up your freedom of speech to just blast whoever you want? Yes, I would. You would give your money to support people knowing about Jesus? Yes, I would. You would forgive your spouse even though they committed adultery on you? Yes, I would. Those are powerful truths, aren't they? This is why it says the church is to be a pillar of truth, immovable, unshakable, unchanging. And when the church toes the line, the world goes, wow. But what happens in a lot of churches is we say, I'll change Jesus so that you'll want to be a part of the household. I'll change the rules so that way you'll like him. God needs our help. He didn't really mean marriage was between a man and a woman. He didn't really mean the church was to be governed by men. He didn't really mean the church was supposed to be. He didn't really mean you're not supposed to God. He didn't mean that. Come on in. Come on in. Can you imagine telling someone who needs a heart transplant? Ah, oh, it can wait. Eat whatever you want. Focus on your knees. You're dead in sin. No, 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 no. You need a new heart. Change your diet. Change it all. You need a new heart. You need Jesus. The loving thing to do is to be truthful. And that's why he says to be a pillar. And this is the, the next part of this is one of the reasons I think a pillar is there 
it gets exhausting upholding the truth, doesn't it? Think of it being as a parent. Don't you get sick of always correcting and changing? Sometimes you're like, I don't care. Go nuts, have fun, kill the whole house, I'm done. You guys ever get there? Yeah, just the four of us? Like, it's a thing. It's exhausting. And so as a Christian, you're sitting there going like, do I really have to keep doing this? And the answer is yes and no. You don't have to keep defending it, but you do have to keep upholding it. You have to keep upholding it. Because we can argue all we want about these things and why it's there and how come it's there and why did God make it this way and why didn't God do it another way. But at the end of the day, it all comes back to do you trust the Father knows best? And as a father and as a mother, don't you just wish it was that easy in parenting? That your kids just walked around, I just trust my mom and dad. I do whatever they say. Wouldn't that be nice? You have to, that's why household language is here. This is why God presents himself as father. This is why Christ presents himself as son. This is why the Holy Spirit is, is declared the helper. This is why the church is called the family. These are structures that we understand. We understand what it's like to, to stare at a little kid and be like, I just, I wish you would trust me. I just, I wish you would believe me because if you would just trust me, there's this pain you wouldn't have to go through and things would be so much better for you. So much better for you. This is why Paul says, look, you have to set up this structure and you need to do it in every church, in every town so that the Christians know how to live. And so the world knows that there's, there's more than money and power and fame is it will beat you, leave you, reject you, and hurt you. The only father that can give you a new heart is God through Christ. And that needs to be told to every non-Christian everywhere. And then for every Christian, they need to be reminded, you have a new heart. You need to act like it. Quit eating all the junk food. Quit eating, acting like you don't have a new heart, that you haven't been given a new family. Remember what the Father has done for you. David Wells has a good quote. He says, and he argues that the church is weak because it's exchanged the sensibilities of the modern culture for the truth of Christ. See, when we invite people to a watered-down Jesus, we don't invite them to Jesus at all. We invite them to water down Jesus, which is just a fluffy teddy bear and a podcast that helps you sleep at night. But it does nothing to change you, sustain you, keep you, forgive you of your sins, give you an eternal home, have you be truly known and truly loved. This is why pillar and truth are so important that we marry these things together that God designed the church to hold the line so that the world knows there's something better. Because when we become like them, they see no need for Jesus. And that's a very unloving thing to do, isn't it? Absolutely. Some questions for us to think through. Question one, what is the purpose of the church? I hope you caught this. The purpose of the church is to glorify God, meaning it's better to be with Jesus than to have anything the world could offer. Think of Paul. I'd rather be in prison 
think of Jesus, I'd rather be crucified. The purpose of the church is to show the world that God is the greatest father that there is. And there's nothing better than having him as that heavenly father. Why is it important to be a part of the church? I want you to think through this. This is important. As you notice your kids get older, they get more busy. And then you find them at the dinner table saying, when did that happen? When are we going there? No one told me. And what's your response? Well, if you were a part of the family, you might know what's going on. You guys ever been there? Yeah, you actually got to show up so that you know what's happening in the family. So you can be a part of what's going on. So you can know what's going on. This is why Hebrews tells us, don't neglect the meeting of the church. Don't neglect this. why Acts 2 says they met weekly and they opened the scriptures and they praised God through song. It has a structure. God says it's important for you to know and it's important for you to be reminded. It's important for you to have time to be around other Christians because hopefully you're in the world somewhat. Either you're working with non-Christians or you're on sports teams with non-Christians. You have some type of non-Christian influence and, you're, and it's crazy and it's hard and it's confusing. And you come to church and you're like, oh, my family. People that value Christ. People that uphold his values. I don't have to fight today. I'm amongst my family. That comfort, that joy, we all need it. That's why it's designed this way. Three, why can't the church water down the truth to help people? Because it doesn't help people. It doesn't help someone when they come in for a heart transplant and you say, nah, that's kind of invasive. Why don't we get you some crutches and just help you walk and then your heart won't have to work as hard? That'd be a bad fix, don't you think? When you're dead in sin, you need a new heart. You need a new heart. You can't water down that apart from Christ paying for your sin, you can't be with the Father. Can't water that down. And as a Christian, you can't change the rules of the house or you live in a different house. It's not loving to encourage people's fantasies and disillusions and false views of Christ. That's why 1 Timothy 4, he says there's going to come a time. People are going to get exhausted of the world hating them, not liking them, judging them, persecuting them, and they're going to fall away. He warns them. It is exhausting sometimes to uphold the truth. You see, but all we have to do is submit to what the truth says. It's not our job to defend it. We're not God. We don't always know why it's there, but we obey it. And we share that there's nothing else we would rather do than to submit to the authority of our Father. Four, what does it look like for the church to be a pillar of truth? Okay. On the non-Christian side, it's focusing on, hey, there's going to be people that maybe come in here and yeah, they're an alcoholic, they're, they're cheating on their spouse, they curse like a sailor, and rather than chase them down and beat them with a stick, we want them to know Christ. We want them to know Christ, and once they have a new heart, then we'll work on, hey, you're kind of out of sorts here. There's some lifestyle changes we got to make. You're, in, you're a new creation. You're a, new, you're a Christian. And for the Christian, it's like, hey, you've been saved. You need to act like it. Why are you so angry? 
Why are you acting like the world? Why are you so envious of non-Christians? Why are you so lost? Why are you so disconnected? You're a Christian. You've been given a new heart. You need to act like someone with a new heart that is grateful and joy. That's what it means to be a pillar of truth. You remind them of what is written, that they're a part of the family of God. And five, how can you be a part of helping the church? This is what's beautiful. There's two things. One, you remember God can save anybody. That's why Paul writes that in chapter two, or at the end of chapter one, right before two. He's saying, look, God's patience is demonstrated that if Paul can become a Christian, anyone can. So you share with anyone. No one is outside the reach of God's saving grace. And invite everyone, they're welcome. But the other part of this is Christianity can be hard. And so Paul lays out this structure for them. He says, look, older women, I'm not saying you're old. You just have to be older than the younger woman and help them out because managing a house can be really hard, especially if you're a mom with little children. You don't get to talk to adults. You get things thrown at you. You're running around trying to fix things. You're trying to guess what's wrong with them. You don't sleep. Your body's a jungle gym. Like everything's in sorts. And it's nice to have an older woman say, hey, there's no other way to say this. It's terrible. Kids are rotten. And your husband doesn't understand. And I'm sorry, but God loves you. And he's with you. And it's going to get better and worse. And you're not alone. And I've been there. And let me help you. You want me to watch your kids while you take a nap? And don't go clean the house because you feel guilty. Actually take a nap, right? That's good for women to have that, isn't it? So the Bible says, hey, older women, remind these younger women that God loves them, Christ died for them, and they're a part of the family. So they uphold the trustworthy word as taught. So they remember who God is and what he's done. Because sometimes it's really hard and sometimes we forget. And that that the world would look at this and be like, how do you guys take care of each other so well? This is older men. Sometimes you need to find a younger man and say, I get it. I hate your job, or you hate your job. Keep working. Don't quit your job to go pursue your dreams on Xbox and not provide for your family and make your wife do all the work. That's being a boy and not being a man. You need to be a man. I mean, read 1 Timothy. It says, The man who doesn't provide for his own family is worse than an unbeliever. I didn't make it up. Read 1 Timothy. And it takes an older man saying, Hey, I hate my job too but there needs to be food on the table. Your kids need to know that you love them enough that you will work in something you don't like so that they can be provided for. Or you work until you can find something else. Young man, stay the course. Young couple, I know marriage is hard. I know you probably want to kill each other, but you can make it through this. God is bigger than your marriage. He's bigger than your disagreements. See, the household of God has this beauty in it You have Christians helping Christians, giving of their time and their resources. And God says, you don't have to learn the hard way. There are older Christians who have been through this. They can help you and they can look you in the eye and say, there's nothing better than following God's design. I'm so glad we didn't get a divorce. I'm so glad I didn't give my kids up for adoption. I'm so glad we didn't fill in the blank. I'm so glad I didn't turn to alcohol. I'm so glad I didn't turn to, I'm so glad I loved and followed Jesus through that. That's the beauty of being a part of the household of God. And that's the line that we have to toe 
with the non-Christian, there's nothing greater than this family. And to the Christian, there's nothing greater than this family. Remember you're a part of this family. Remember to act like you're a part of this family. The church is to be a pillar of truth so that everyone might know that there's no greater father than God. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. Uh, We thank you that we get to open your word and see how you've laid out a plan for us. That we get to have a family called the church. That we get to be a part of one another's lives in deep and meaningful ways. That you have a design for us as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a son, as a boss, as an employee, as a citizen of this earth. You lay it out how we're supposed to be, and we thank you for that direction. We thank you for that intentionality. And it's our prayer that we would just sing to the world, sing to one another. There's nothing better than having you. There's no other household we'd rather be in. No matter what pain or suffering might come, your house is the greatest house. And we're so privileged to be a part of that family. It's my prayer that we would celebrate that now through singing and worship and attesting of your greatness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.